the engine but left the headlights on. He sat still for a moment, listening. The village dogs were howling. He felt the hairs on the back of his neck rise. Susan Kendall frowned. Where is everyone? I do not know. Ferran slid cautiously out from behind the wheel. By now dozens of excited men, women, and children should have been thronging around them, grinning and murmuring in glee at the sight of the bulging seed bags and brand-new shovels, rakes, and hoes piled high in the Toyota's cargo bed. But nothing stirred among Gusasa's darkened huts. Hello? the Frenchman called. He tried out his limited endobili. Lichone Ingani? Good evening? The dogs only howled louder, baying at the night sky. Ferran shivered. He leaned back inside the pickup. Something is very wrong here, Susan. You should make contact with our people. Now, as a precaution. The gray-haired American woman stared at him for a moment, her eyes suddenly wide. Then she nodded and climbed down out of the Toyota. Working swiftly, she set up the linked satellite phone laptop computer they carried in the field. It allowed them to communicate with their home office in Paris, though it was mainly used to upload photos and progress reports to the main Lazarus website. Ferran watched her in silence. Most of the time he found Susan Kendall intensely annoying, but she had courage when it counted. Perhaps more courage than he himself possessed. He sighed and reached under the seat for the flashlight clipped there. After a moment's reflection, he slung their digital camera over his shoulder. What are you doing, Gilles? she asked, already punching in the phone code for Paris. I am going to take a look around, he said stiffly. All right, but you should wait until I have a connection, Kendall told him. She held the satellite phone to her ear for a moment. Her thin-lipped mouth tightened. They've already left the office. There's no answer. Ferran checked his watch. France was only an hour behind them, but it was the weekend. They were on their own. Try the website, he suggested. She nodded. Ferran forced himself to move. He squared his shoulders and walked slowly into the village. He swept his flashlight in a wide arc, probing the darkness ahead. A lizard scuttled away from the beam, startling him. He muttered a soft curse and kept going. Sweating now despite the cool night breeze, he came to the open space at the center of Gusasa. There was the village well. It was a favorite gathering place for young and old alike at the end of the day. He swept the flashlight across the hard-packed earth and froze. The people of Gusasa would not rejoice over the seeds and farm equipment he had brought them. They would not lead the rebirth of African agriculture. They were dead. All of them were dead. The Frenchman stood frozen, his mind reeling in horror. There were corpses everywhere he looked. Dead men, women, and children lay in heaps across the clearing. Most of the bodies were intact, though twisted and misshapen by some terrible agony. Others seemed eerily hollow, almost as though they had been partially eaten from the inside out. A few were reduced to nothing more than torn shreds of flesh and bone surrounded by congealed puddles of blood-red slime. Thousands of huge black flies swarmed over the mutilated corpses, lazily feasting on the remains. 
Near the well, a small dog nuzzled the contorted body of a young child, vainly trying to rouse its playmate. Gilles Ferrand swallowed hard, fighting down a surge of bile and vomit. With trembling hands, he set down his flashlight, took the digital camera off his shoulder, and began taking pictures. Someone had to document this terrible slaughter. Someone had to warn the world of this massacre of the innocents, of people whose only crime had been to side with the Lazarus movement. Four men lay motionless on one of the hills overlooking the village. They wore desert camouflage fatigues and body armor. Night vision goggles and binoculars gave them a clear view of every movement made below while audio pickups fed every sound into their headsets. One of the observers studied a shielded monitor. He looked up. They have a link to the satellite, and we're tapped in with them. His leader, a giant auburn-haired man with bright green eyes, smiled thinly. Good. He leaned closer to get a better view of the screen. It showed a series of gruesome images, the pictures taken only minutes before by Gilles Ferrand, slowly loading onto the Lazarus website. The green-eyed man watched carefully. Then he nodded. That's enough. Cut their link. The observer complied, rapidly entering commands on a portable keypad. He tapped the enter key, sending a set of coded instructions to the communications satellite high overhead. One second later, the digital pictures streaming up from Kusasa froze, flickered, and then vanished. The green-eyed man glanced at the two men lying flat next to him. Both were armed with Heckler & Koch PSG-1 sniper rifles designed for covert operations use. Now, kill them. He focused his night vision binoculars on the two Lazarus movement activists. The bearded Frenchman and the slender American woman were staring down at their satellite hookup in disbelief. Target acquired, one of the snipers murmured. He squeezed the trigger. The 7.62-millimeter round hit Ferrand in the forehead. The Frenchman toppled backward and slid to the ground, smearing blood and brains down the side of the Toyota. Target down. The second sniper fired an instant later. His bullet caught Susan Kendall high in the back. She fell in a heap next to her colleague. The tall, green-eyed leader rose to his feet. More of his men, these wearing hazardous material suits, were already moving down the slope, carrying an array of scientific equipment. He keyed his throat mic, reporting through an encrypted satellite link. This is Prime. Field one is complete. Evaluation, collection, and analysis proceeding as planned. He eyed the two dead Lazarus activists. Spark has also been initiated. As ordered. Part one. Chapter one. Tuesday, October 12th, Taylor Institute for Advanced Technology, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan John Smith, M.D., turned off Old Agua Fria Road and drove up to the Institute's main gate. He narrowed his eyes against the early morning glare. Off on his left, sunlight was just spilling over the dazzling snow-capped peaks of the Sangre de Cristo Range. It lit steep slopes carpeted with gold-leafed aspens, towering firs, ponderosa pines, and oaks. 
Farther down at the foot of the mountains, the shorter pinion pines, junipers, and clumps of sagebrush surrounding the Institute's thick, sand-covered adobe walls were still cloaked in shadow. Some of the protesters camped out along the road crawled out of their sleeping bags to watch his car go by. A handful waved handmade signs demanding stop killer science, no to nanotech, or let Lazarus lead. Most stayed put, unwilling to face the chilly October dawn. Santa Fe was at 7,000 feet, and the nights were growing cold. Smith felt a momentary twinge of sympathy for them. Even with the heater in his rental car going, he could feel the cold through his brown leather bomber jacket and sharply creased khakis. At the gate, a gray-uniformed security guard waved him to a stop. John rolled down his window and handed over his U.S. Army ID for inspection. The photo on his identity card showed a fit man in his early forties, a man whose high cheekbones and smooth dark hair gave him the look of a haughty Spanish cavalier. In person, the twinkle in Smith's dark blue eyes shattered the illusion of arrogance. Good morning, Colonel, said the guard, an ex-Army Ranger staff sergeant named Frank Diaz. After scrutinizing the ID, he leaned forward, peering through the car windows to make sure that Smith was alone. His right hand hovered warily near the 9mm Beretta pistol holstered at his side. The flap on the holster was unsnapped, freeing the Beretta for a quick draw if necessary. Smith raised an eyebrow at that. Security at the Teller Institute was usually more relaxed, certainly not up to the level of the top-secret nuclear labs at nearby Los Alamos. But the President of the United States, Samuel Adams Castilla, was scheduled to visit the Institute in three days.